Well, if you have a Bible, go ahead and uh, let's open up to Matthew chapter 12. And we're going to be in verses uh, 38 to 42 today. In the previous passage, um, Jesus talked about how a tree uh, is known by its fruit. Good trees bear good fruit. Bad trees bear good fruit. And hopefully that caused us to think about uh, the fruit of our life. But as we dive into uh, today's passage, it just starts off in verse 30 by saying then. So in other words, kind of on the heels of him talking about a tree and its fruit. Uh, then some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered him saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Now, the Pharisees, the scribes, they, they often get a bad rap, and rightfully so. They, they kind of earned the bad rap uh, that they tend uh, to get. Jesus has provided them no shortage of signs up to this point uh, in Matthew's gospel. And here they are saying, show us a sign. And, and, and the way that this language is, this isn't a curious, like, please show us a sign so that we might believe. This is more of a, oh, why don't you show us a sign, great one, kind of a thing where it's more of a, a mocking uh, kind of a tone. And it's kind of, kind of reminds me, there's this scene in John chapter 6. I don't know if you're familiar. Jesus feeds a bunch of people with just a little bit of food, one of the miracles that he performed. And immediately on the heels of this miracle, uh, a crowd follows Jesus and they're saying the same thing, show us a sign after this incredible miracle uh, that he just did. And the idea is that there, there is no sign uh, for some of these people uh, that is good enough for them to believe who Jesus is. And I don't think we're a whole lot different today uh, as a human race. We haven't changed all that much in 2,000 years. Um, th there is no sign for some that's going to be great enough for them to be convinced of who Jesus is. And so Jesus gives them kind of a harsh answer, verse 39, but he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. So when Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, calls you an evil and adulterous generation, that's not good. He knows that these people are not asking because they're legitimately seeking who God is. He knows that this is more of a mocking tone, and he just calls them out as an evil and adulterous generation. And again, I don't think in 2,000 years a whole lot has changed, except maybe we're more evil, and maybe we're more adulterous than we were back then. Paul, in Romans chapters 1 and 2, gives a scathing rebuke of humanity. He gives this long list of all of the evils of humanity, and if that's not enough, he says that we're inventors of evil, us humans. Our, our invention of evil knows no bounds. And, and I don't know if you're like me, you know about me, I, I have my head in the headlines a lot uh, throughout any given day, and there's just a lot of junk going on in the world. And it just seems like the, the trajectory and the pace at which the junk that happens in the world, like it's just, it's a sharper trajectory and it's increasing rapidly because we're an evil and adulterous generation. And Jesus tells this evil and adulterous generation that's standing in front of him, and he tells us 2,000 years later that the only sign that will be given is the sign of Jonah. And the sign of Jonah is that just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. 
you know, to take a little bit of a side trail here for just a brief second, this three days, three nights thing kind of causes some consternation for some of us. Jesus died on a Friday and he rose on a Sunday. And if you're good at math, uh, even if you're not great at math, you can figure out that's not three full days, right? A few years ago, several years ago now, my, my wife and I wrecked our vehicles on the same day over Lava Butte. Bad day. And we had a tow company come and tow one of, one of the vehicles drove away, but the other one had to be towed. And I called the tow company and I asked them, what's the deal? How much does it cost to have the vehicle at your yard until I can come get it? Um, we wiped out both of our vehicles, so I didn't really have a way to get there. And they said, if your vehicle comes in at 11.59 p.m., that's a day. And then if it's still there at 12 a.m., that's also a day. And there was a charge per day. The, the Jews kind of tracked time this way. Any part of a day constituted basically a day. And so Jesus died on a Friday, rose, Friday afternoon, rose on a Sunday morning. The way that the Jewish culture tracked time, that was three 24-hour periods according to the way that they did things. So hopefully that helps some of the consternation. But the story of Jonah, we've got to be a little bit familiar with the story of Jonah uh, even beyond the three days and three nights in the belly of the fish so that we can understand what Jesus is getting at here. And so I don't know if you're familiar with the story of Jonah. It's a short book, uh, easy read if you want to go read the story later. But essentially, God called Jonah to this place called Nineveh. And it was a place that Jonah didn't want to go. Think of somewhere that you don't want to go. And if God said, go there, this, this, that's your Nineveh, okay? And so Jonah, being the good prophet that he was, decides to hop on a boat that was going the opposite direction of Nineveh. And he gets on a boat, and you can already know, how does it go when you argue with God? Does anybody ever win an argument with God? They don't. Jonah gets on a boat going the opposite direction of Nineveh. The weather started getting rough. The tiny ship was tossed. <laughs> the sea was tempestuous, the Bible says. And the people on the ship were wondering, like, what's going on here? Why? This is odd. What, what, what's the deal here? And Jonah kind of falls on his sword and says, okay, this is my fault that nature is coming against us or that God is coming against us because I'm disobeying God. And so he tells the people, throw me overboard and then that'll solve everything. And so they didn't waste any time. They threw him overboard and the sea died down and, and the tiny ship wasn't tossed anymore. And then a great fish comes up and swallows Jonah. This is kind of a crazy sounding story. But a great fish comes and swallows Jonah, and he's in this belly of the fish, the Bible says, for three days and three nights. And then we're told that the fish vomited him up on the shore. I love that language. Vomited up on the shore. And you know what shore he ended up on? Nineveh. He was trying to go the opposite way that God called him, and God's like, nope, <laughs> we're doing this. And so he ends up on the shore of Nineveh. And so that's the first part of this, that, that Jonah survived three days and three nights, and Jesus is telling him, this is the sign that you're going to get, that you're asking for. And it's a reference to the resurrection, and we're celebrating now the resurrection of Christ as we come into uh, Easter this coming week. Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, talks about the resurrection. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, 
that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day, also in accordance with the scriptures. And so Paul says that this is of first importance. It's paramount. It's of the utmost importance that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day. Paul would go on to say a few verses down in 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 14, that if Christ was not raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Paul places this huge importance upon the resurrection of Christ. It's of first importance, top of the list. Essentially, he says, the wheels on the bus of Christianity fall off if the resurrection is not true. If God cannot raise anybody from the dead, if he did not raise Christ from the dead, our preaching, what we do here every week, is in vain. And what you believe, your faith, he says, it's, it's futile. There are a lot of people out there that would say of Jesus that he was a good man and that he taught love and he taught kindness and he taught grace and we should follow those things that he taught. I would agree with that. Jesus is so much more than that, but, but yes. But Paul would say, if that's all that Jesus is to you, if he's just a good man that taught good things that we ought to follow, if our hope is that we can kind of be our best person in this life now, he says, we Christians are of all people most to be pitied. If God doesn't command death, if he hasn't conquered sin, our faith is futile and our preaching is in vain. When I read this, I think about John chapter 11. Jesus had a friend named Lazarus who died. Maybe you know that story too. He got word that his friend died and he makes his way. It takes him a few days to get to the scene, but he makes his way. Lazarus is buried. He's in the grave. He shows up on scene and People are crying. They're grieving over the loss of their friend, over their brother. And Jesus gets there, and the shortest verse in all the Bible, John eleven thirty five, 35, simply says that Jesus wept. And I've thought about that a lot over the years. Why did Jesus weep? If you know the story, Jesus would stand in front of the grave, and he would say, Lazarus, come out of the grave. Which for anybody, if you and I did that, people would think we're certifiably crazy. But Jesus stood in front of the grave and called Lazarus out, and you know what happened? He came out of the grave. Jesus commanded death. He knew that was going to happen, but in the moments leading up to that, he stood there and he wept. And I don't know why he wept, but I think it might have something to do with seeing the grief of the people, seeing the effect that, that sin has. Right? Death was not... Not to be, death came as a result of sin. I think that's what caused Jesus in that moment to weep. Weeping over sin and death and the effects and the consequences of it. And in perhaps his greatest miracle stands in front of the grave and calls Lazarus out, and he did. He walked out of the grave. 
This is what Paul is talking about. If, if, if God doesn't have power over death, we're hosed, all of us. But we believe that God has power over death. That he conquered sin by dying. He beat death by death. That's kind of a crazy story too. We, we wouldn't write that book necessarily. How are you going to beat the enemy of death? Well, I'm going to beat it by dying. That's what Jesus did. And Jesus didn't need anybody to stand in front of the grave and say, Jesus, come out. Right? In, in the power of the Spirit, by the will of the Father, Jesus, on his own authority, came out of the grave. He conquered death. And so when Paul says that this is of first importance, it really is of first importance. Christianity hinges on the resurrection of Christ. And I would ask you, anybody that might be a skeptic or, or a bit of a doubter, what, what if this is true? What if? It's easy to hear or read something like this and think, well, that, that's just a, a made-up story. Who walks out of a grave? Right? We, we have a lot of advanced technology today, but we can't bring back somebody to life that has died. We just can't do it. What if, what if Jesus really did conquer death? What if it's true? What if it's not a crazy story? There, there were eyewitnesses, hundreds of eyewitnesses that saw the resurrected Christ. What if it's true? Tim Keller talks about that if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, nothing he said or did matters all that much. But if he did, everything he said and everything he did matters more than anything. If Jesus really conquered death. If the story of Jesus was just a story of a good man who lived a good life and was kind and nice and generous to people, and if the story ends with, with a good man dying a tragic and unjust death, it doesn't matter all that much. It's a sad story, but it doesn't matter all that much. But if this sign of Jonah that Jesus says will be given to an evil and adulterous generation if that's true and we miss that sign, what are we missing out on? What if Jesus really is who he says he is? What if he really did what the Bible says that he did? What if he conquered death? Then we can look at that guy and say, okay, he conquered death, he beat sin. That, that's worthy of faith and that's worthy of allegiance. That's worthy of submission. That's worthy of authority if this is true. And this is the sign to be given. And then Jesus goes on in verse 41 to say, that the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So Jonah's in the fish for three days and three nights, and he gets vomited up onto the shore of Nineveh. And he reluctantly goes into Nineveh. The Bible says that it took three days to walk across Nineveh, so it was a pretty big place, pretty big city. He goes into Nineveh, goes, walks a, a couple of days, gets kind of into the middle of the city, and he, he pronounces God's judgment on Nineveh. And do you know what happened? The people of Nineveh repented all the way from the king, all the way down. The people repented at the pronouncement of God's judgment. They believed 
And then, do you know how the story ends? Jonah, you would think that he might kind of celebrate a victory in this moment, but Jonah, being who he is, walks outside of town. He sits down and he sulks and he complains to God. He's like, I knew this would happen. I knew it. And he's mad. He's not like, I knew it, like way to go. He's mad that it happens. And the story ends with Jonah sulking at what God did. What a cool prophet, huh? (laughs) And so Jesus, leaning on this story, condemns those in front of him, the scribes and the Pharisees, saying that the people of Nineveh, as evil as they were, a prophet came to them, they heard the message, they received the message, and they repented. And so they're, they're judged, this evil and adulterous generation is judged by a previous evil and adulterous generation that repented. And it's not Jonah standing in front of the scribes of the Pharisees, it's Jesus himself. Something greater than Jonah is here. Jonah, he reluctantly went where God, and maybe that's even an overstatement, it was, he begrudgingly went where God told him to go. Jesus willingly went where the Father told him to go. Jonah reluctantly and begrudgingly preached a message. Maybe there was some, something in Jonah that maybe he enjoyed preaching God's judgment. I don't know. A little speculation there, but I'm guessing that he might not have had too difficult of a time letting him know that you know, things weren't going well. Jesus lovingly preaches the message, repent and believe. People of Nineveh repented and believed. The people standing in front of Jesus have not repented, and have not believed. If you remember a few verses back when they were begging Jesus about doing good things and healing people on the Sabbath, they were so angry at him. Do you remember what they did? They, they conspired to kill him. They conspired to kill him for healing people and for eating on the Sabbath, for breaking their rules. And so the men of Nineveh who repented stand in judgment over the men and women of Jesus' day who have yet to repent. Then in verse 42, Jesus goes on to make another reference. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. So the queen of the south, it's a reference to the queen of Sheba, story can be found in 1 Kings chapter 10. And the story goes like this, 1 Kings 10. Now the queen of Sheba had heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord. She came to test him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue with camels, bearing spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind and Solomon answered all of her questions. There was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials, and the attendance of his servants, their clothing, their cupbearers, and his burnt offerings that he had offered to the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. And she said to the king, the report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and your wisdom, but I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. 
Your wisdom and prosperity surpass the report that I heard. Happy are your men, happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. He has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. And then she gave the king 120 talents of gold, a very large quantity of spices and precious stones, and never again came in such abundance of spices as these that the queen of Sheba came gave to the king of Solomon. And so this queen from a far off land hears about the fame of Solomon. Solomon is one, one of the greater kings of Israel, known for his wealth, known for his wisdom, known for some other things too, but uh, known for wealth and wisdom primarily. And so this queen from the south decided, I need, I need to go see this for myself. I'm hearing a lot of things. I need to go see this for myself. And so she traveled a great distance and no doubt with a large entourage. And we're told that Solomon answered all of her questions. She had hard questions for him. And, and not like the Pharisees and the scribes to Jesus, she's not trying to trip him up. The idea here is that she had some legitimate hard questions that she was seeking answers to. So she asked all of her questions and Solomon answered all of them. Nothing was hidden from the king, it says. And when she saw all of it, when she heard all of it, it says that there was no more breath in her. Her breath was taken away at the wisdom of Solomon and the kingdom that he had built. She was impressed. Go back to the scribes of the Pharisees. King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end is standing in front of them. They're not impressed at all. They're trying to figure out how to off him. Queen of Sheba is standing in front of Solomon and, and she can't even breathe. She's so impressed. She said that the half, as much as she had heard, the half was not told her. And so this was even greater than what she had heard, and then she gave him gifts. Such an abundance of spices. Solomon had a lot of things. Solomon had everything that anybody could ever want. And it says that she gave him so many spices that never again had anybody accumulated such an amount of spices than what the Queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. And Jesus is telling them, the Queen of Sheba, this Queen of the South, on the judgment day will stand up in judgment against the scribes and the Pharisees. And here we have another contrast. The queen came, traveled a great distance at a great expense to see Solomon. Jesus is standing in front of the Pharisees. He came at great expense and at great cost as well. Queen of Sheba's breath is taken away by Solomon. The Pharisees are trying to figure out how to get rid of Jesus. We see some contrasts here in Jesus saying that these things will rise up at the judgment. The men of Nineveh, the queen of the south, will rise up at the judgment. Someone greater than Jonah is standing in front of them. Someone greater than the queen of Sheba is standing in front of them. And as the Pharisees would do, and not only the Pharisees and the scribes, but in this instance as the Pharisees and the scribes would do, they don't have a clue who's standing in front of them. And maybe they don't want to have a clue. Or maybe they do have a clue and they're rejecting it of who's standing in front of them. Earlier I said that humanity hasn't changed all that much. 
probably in the last couple thousand years. I think today we have people that, that refuse to recognize Jesus, that refuse to submit to Jesus, that refuse to see his authority, that refuse allegiance to him. We, we have people in our day that that maybe to some extent are indifferent to Jesus, although I don't know that you can be fully indifferent to the king of the universe. Romans 1 tells us that we can see the plain evidence of the existence of God just by looking around. Look outside and see the beauty of creation. There's no excuse for a disbelief in God. Like the Pharisees of Jesus' day, not recognizing him. I guess my encouragement to us today, the thing that I'd ask you to consider today is that do you recognize Jesus for who he is? The greatest thing of all time, the greatest person in all of history, God in the flesh, maybe isn't physically standing in front of us, but he's revealed himself to us through Jesus. He's revealed himself to us through his word. We have it, and it's ours to believe it's ours to accept or to reject. And I would ask you to consider your acceptance or your rejection of the revelation of God and the person of Jesus Christ and in the Holy Scriptures. If Jesus is who he says he is, if he walked out of the grave, if he conquered death, if he defeated sin, if he's the redeemer of all things which we believe him to be, if he has power to bridge the gap in the broken relationship that we have with the Father, we ought to pay attention to that if, if that's true. And so the question comes down to what, what, what do you believe about the sign of Jonah? What do you believe about the resurrection? And if you would sit here today and say, I believe the resurrection is true, what, what does that mean when you walk out these doors? What does that mean when you go to work tomorrow? If the resurrection is true, it ought to shape every facet of our life. It ought to inform and impact everything that we say and everything that we do. Even the mundane things of life, going, going to work day in and day out, if the resurrection is true, we, we, we have a message that people desperately need to hear, if it's true. If you're sitting here and you're, and you're doubting or questioning, then there's kind of a, there's a normal level of doubt that, that's okay. God can handle our doubt, okay? God can handle it. And I would encourage you to, to search the scriptures in your doubt and ask God to reveal truth to you. If your doubt is more of a rejecting what, what God said should be plain to be true to you, I will tell you the same thing. Seek God in your extreme doubt and ask Him to reveal the truth to you. The Bible tells us that if we draw near to God, that He'll draw near to us. The Bible tells us that faith is a gift from God to us. And so when we doubt, when we lack, the Bible tells us to ask, and God, God will give us those things. But what if the resurrection is true? What if the sign of Jonah is real? What if it really happened? Then what? 
who in your life do you know that, that doubts this or, or maybe has never heard it? I think for me, you know, growing up and thinking about, you know, just my, my circle of friends, a lot, of, a lot of people my age grew up in church and were at least exposed to the truths of God. That's not so true anymore. It's not so true anymore. There are a lot of people that have never been church and have never heard this and never been confronted with the truth of the gospel and the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so there's no doubt that you have somebody, maybe many somebodies in your life that maybe need to be lovingly confronted with this truth. And I would ask you to consider what that might look like, who you might confront with the truth, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I think we always need to kind of come back to this question, what if? What if the Bible is true? What if Jesus conquered? Like, I, I got to ask myself that all the time. What if? I have, to be, I have to remind myself. It's kind of a way of preaching the gospel to myself by asking, what if this is true, then what? And I'm, I'm a pretty linear thinker, and so just the logic of it is helpful for me. If this is true, then this should be the result. That's just the way my, my brain is wired. Maybe your brain's wired differently, but it's helpful for me to, to revisit this question often. What if? What if the gospel is true? What if Jesus conquered sin? What if he conquered death? What if he's a redeemer? What if I'm a sinner? What if I can't redeem myself? What, what if I need outside intervention to fix this problem that's beyond my capability? What if? What if? And so as you consider the question for you, what if? Especially this week as, as the resurrection is in view. I hope we preach the resurrection all the time here. We do. But as we have a holidays, especially to celebrate it, what if? And maybe that's a question to ask people in your life, what if? Maybe that's a great way to invite them to church. What if? What if this message is true? Then what? So be encouraged. Be encouraged that the Christ is who he says he is. He did. The Bible says he did. He commands sin. He commands death. He redeems you. He redeems me. And God's plan for the redemption of the world is to take the redeemed, put them back in the world, and go spread the message of redemption. That, that's God's plan. And so as someone who would sit here and say, God has redeemed me, you necessarily sign up for being placed back out in the world to spread the message of redemption. That, that's God's design for it. And so consider this week who you might invite to church next week. Consider who you might engage uh, even outside of church in, in gospel-centered conversations, lovingly and graciously and caringly uh, to those in your life. Nobody else has claimed the claim of Jesus and nobody else has done what Jesus has done. Therefore, what he's done is more important than anything and should be the thing that shapes every aspect of our life. Father, this morning we're thankful. We're thankful that you willingly came to an evil and adulterous generation. We're thankful that you didn't come in order to smite us, but you came out of love, so that we might be redeemed 
We're thankful that you conquered sin and that you conquered death. Thankful that you give us the gift of faith to believe that to be true. Thankful that we have the hope of eternity as Christians. That we would spend eternity with you. And so God, I pray for us today that you would give us um, just maybe a, a fresh and an ex, a fresh excitement about the resurrection, that you would bolster our faith, that you would help us as redeemed followers of Christ to go out into the world and spread the message of redemption. And as we do that, God, we pray that you would use those efforts in order to bring people uh, who don't know you uh, into a loving relationship with you. And we ask it all in Christ's name. Amen.